welcome into TYT's The Conversation. It is your host, Adrian Lawrence, and I am now joined by an investigative reporter for the Washington Post, who happens to also be the co-host of the new Washington Post podcast called Broken Doors. Welcome in, Jen Abelson. Thanks for having me, Adrian. Yes, and thank you so much for joining us. I understand that you have this podcast that's a six-part series special by the Washington Post. Can you tell us a little bit about Broken Doors? Absolutely. Um, so we started Broken Doors uh, after the 2020 uh, killing of Breonna Taylor in a botched raid in Louisville, Kentucky. And my reporting partner and I, Nicole Duga, have spent the last year investigating no-knock warrants, uh, which are one of the most aggressive and intrusive forms of policing, uh, when police essentially force their way into your homes without warning. And we wanted to examine the consequences of this kind of policing tactic and understand the fallout for people across the country. And so as you were working on this um, Broken Doors, a six part series that I understand is part of the Post Unaccountable series um, that you also co-host with Nicole Dunka. Uh, what essentially is going through your minds in terms of how you wanna present this information given that no knock warrants have been extremely, um, they've just been leading a lot of headlines when it comes to the fatal shooting of unarmed black people. Absolutely. Well, I think it was a term that a lot of people really weren't familiar with before the killing of Breonna Taylor in 2020, but they've actually been around for decades, these dangerous and risky warrants. And they're essentially high risk searches. And we wanted to understand really how often these happen. What are the kinds of communities? Where where do these happen? Who are the communities that are bearing the brunt of this kind of aggressive policing? And, and it was actually a really difficult task to try to answer some of these very basic questions in terms of how often do they happen? No one is keeping track of this kind of information. Um, where are they happening? It's in, it's incredibly impossible, and there's a lot of opaque opacity. Sorry, there's a lot of opacity around around this subject and trying to dig deeply into it. And so we spent a lot of time reviewing warrants from across the country. We looked at over uh, 2,500 warrants in 30 states, trying to look at what is on. What, how are police able to actually get these warrants? What kind of information do they need? And we found raised a lot. What we found raised a lot of questions. Wow, and I bet it did indeed raise a lot of questions, um, especially because warrants, it's my understanding, would have to have a judge sign off on it, that there'd be some requirement of probable cause there. Is that happening? Is that not the case? Yes, yeah, so what we found in a lot of instances is that there's very little pushback from judges. Judges are supposed to be the ultimate gatekeepers. They're the ones who sign off and give police the authority to break down someone's door. We found that often that they are abdicating their responsibility. They're not questioning the claims that police are making um, on their affidavits when they're presenting them to judges. Judges are not asking basic questions. Do they know the names of the suspects? Are there children who live there? Do they have the right address? And we found so often so many cases where there were people who were injured or killed in these in no-knock raids where there were some really, really gaping holes in terms of the kinds of surveillance police were doing, the questions that judges weren't asking. Um, that really led us to question, you know, how does this all happen? Wow, and so it just seems like these members of the judiciary are rubber stamping uh, authorization for law enforcement to just burst into someone's home or someone's dwelling. And that seems like that would be extremely shocking. I know I'd be terrified if all of a sudden someone burst through the door. And so I guess, where do we go from here? I think that's a really good question. You're seeing a lot of communities across the country attempt to put some restrictions or limitations or even ban no-knocks outright, but it's a really difficult thing to do. It's very tricky. And I think that there has been pushback in certain communities. We're even seeing in places like Wisconsin, there's been um, backlash in the opposite direction where they're trying to protect 
police from having any kinds of restrictions around no knocks. And so we're hearing these conversations from law enforcement community, from judges about how do you go about this effectively? You know, in Minneapolis where Amir Locke was killed, they had also put in restrictions around no knocks. And I think there was a huge disconnect in what they thought was happening on paper and what was actually happening in practice. And so you end up with the shooting of Amir Locke who had a, um, you know, was on his couch sleeping, had a gun nearby and was killed and was not even the suspect. And I know that that's extremely upsetting, particularly because Amir Locke just not being the suspect being inside the dwelling. Also, I believe he had a right to have his firearm and he's 22 years old. You're telling me nothing is being done to curb this practice of being able to burst into someone's home, whether they're sleeping or not fully cognizant of what's going on and take their life. I mean, what we found was there were some efforts in the wake of Breonna Taylor shooting to push this. And after the killing of George Floyd, there were efforts to push um, national, national policing reform, but it really didn't make it out of the house. There have been renewed calls after Amir Locke's shooting to do something at a national level. But as we've seen with so many issues, it's really difficult to make progress, um, to be able to make change on some of these difficult topics. I think you hear from police who support these no-knock warrants that they say it's an essential tool to defend themselves, to protect themselves, to preserve the destruction of evidence. Um, and so they want to make sure that they keep this in their toolkit um, in order to continue to have you know, the most impactful policing they can. And so I think it's really difficult, especially as we're seeing across the country surges in crime. And there's all of the talk around you know, cutting police budgets or rolling back some of the concerns around aggressive policing. There, we haven't seen a lot of um, real, real change at a national level yet. It would definitely seem to me if people are innocent people are losing their lives as a result of no knock warrants. And also that we know it's an aggressive police practice that can threaten and endanger people's lives, that there would be a higher standard for being able to obtain a no knock warrant. But it doesn't seem like that's the case at all, that it's just willy nilly rubber stamp, go have a good time boys. Um, so I guess what's, are people trying to lobby to change laws? What are people doing? I think we've seen some efforts to to try to change laws, to try to restrict it. We've seen the Department of Justice has in, uh, made some restrictions around when instances and cases when officers can use them. We've seen in Utah and in Nevada, there have been efforts to restrict them at a state level as well. Nevada, the AG will no longer, um, the governor signed a, a bill to no longer allow people to have no knock warrants for police to go after people because of you know simple drug possession crimes. And I think that's one of the big takeaways that we had as well was how just how easy it was to carry out this kind of tactic and how little um, how little how low the threshold was in order to be able to get a no knock warrant. And so many of these cases were drug cases. We looked at 22 fatalities um, involving no knock raids. The vast majority involved narcotic searches. When we were looking trying to tally up the cases that we could in terms of how much drugs were seized, it was less than three pounds in a dozen of the cases combined. And so I think some states are re-examining and some communities are re-examining when these no-knocks are appropriate. Because I think some of the points you're making are exactly right, that it seems to butt against our um, Fourth Amendment rights to be protected from unreasonable searches. Um, I think a lot of people feel that no-knocks kind of conflict with the feeling that you should have the safety and sense of security to, to be safe in your own home, in your own bed. Um, and no-knocks turn a lot of that on its head.
Yes, it definitely seems to be the case. And as you had mentioned earlier, the concept of no knock warrants was really became something that we talked about on a national level as a result of Breonna Taylor. And as I understand it, you have some footage here or some audio here from the podcast that involves her mother, Tamika Palmer. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. We talked with Tamika, Breonna Taylor's mother, and her sister about sort of their journey that they've been on since she was killed two years ago and what it's been like to be sort of have her daughter become the public face of such a really difficult topic. And so when we went to her and talked about our reporting and what we found and how how hard it is, you know, just two years later to still be living through this every day. Let's go ahead and play that clip now. I cannot believe what so everything that's happened in the last few years that there are police officers still choosing to behave in that manner. I can't believe that that people are still doing this thing, you know, like and and here we are coming up on March the thirteenth again and, and no one's been held accountable for what happened to Brianna. And to have to stomach this day all over again is insane to me. It's I've said this a hundred times every it's still March the 13th to me. I can't imagine what she went through and what she goes through every day, knowing that no one's been prosecuted, no one's been held responsible for her daughter's murder. Yet, even I believe the officer, one of the officers, is now suing to get his job back. And it really seems that these officers have been given a license to just burst into anyone's home and unload their guns. So I know I could say this time and time again, but I'm sure I could really beat that down. But what I'd like to talk about is in terms of the work you're doing with Broken Doors, where are you all at right now in the series? Absolutely, so we spent the first three episodes in a place called Monroe County, Mississippi, where no knocks were the rule rather than the exception. And so we we spent time there trying to understand what happened there was um, some really um, concerning uh, cases that we discovered about a man who uh, had his home raided in the middle of the night while he was sleeping and understanding what little police had to raid his home and all of the problems that happened afterward. Um, we also focused on the case of a man who was killed there um, by police who showed up to a trailer at 1 a.m. and um, shot dozens of bullets into his trailer. And from there, we're going to our next episode for launches uh, launches and it's going to be about a case out of Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Um, and then we're headed all across the country to St. Louis, to Texas and to other places um, where we are untangling these fatal no-knock raids, what happened and what are the lessons learned there. Wow, it sounds like it's definitely a powerful piece of journalism that we should all sink our teeth into so that we can understand better about these inequities in our society. That's as far as I'm concerned, run afoul of the US Constitution and people's rights. Uh, but in terms of where you are now and what you have left, can you give us uh, a little hint, uh, if you're willing to, just a little bit more about mm-hmm. what's to come? Absolutely. I think there are a few issues that we're going to be looking at in terms of the ease of which uh, police can get their hands on these no knock warrants, looking at new technology that allows police to get uh, no knock warrants with the click of a button. That's an area that we're exploring, along with. Um, some cases out of uh, other parts of the country where police routinely were able to get multi-house no-knock raids, where they were going knocking down the doors of multiple houses at the same time and understanding what justified this kind of force. What were police actually getting out of these search warrants and is it worth it?
um, and and some cases from there. And we really hope that you um, you know can all stay tuned and listen in. Um, we think it's some of the most uh, challenging and compelling reporting that we've done in quite a long time um, for me personally. And so um, I'm really excited to be able to share this work with you. Well, thank you so much. I definitely appreciate your work and I look forward to checking Thanks. out Broken Doors. And I'm guessing it's everywhere we can find our podcast. Is that right? Absolutely. All right, then you all should know it. If you're following TYT podcast, please do check out the Washington Post Broken Doors. Thank you again for joining us. That's Jen Abelson, investigative returner for the uh, investigative reporter, excuse me, for the Washington Post and co-host of the new Washington Post podcast Broken Doors. Thanks so much, Adrian. Once again, it is a conversation and once again, I'm Adrian Lawrence. This time though, I have for you the chair of You Are the Power. Also, he was the 2020 Libertarian Vice Presidential Candidate. That's Spike Cohen. Thanks for joining us, Spike. Thank you for having me, Adrian. Now, Spike, I understand there's an issue that's kind of close to your heart, which happens to be homeless veterans abuse. And you know of a recent incident coming out of Gastonia, North Carolina? Yep, that's correct. Um, so what happened basically, uh, I was first alerted to this by followers on social media uh, who told me about what happened. The long story short is that a, a homeless veteran by the name of Joshua Rohrer uh, was accused on a 911 call of actually not even breaking the, uh, the law. The original 911 call said that he was quote, using his dog to make people feel sorry for him and give him money and that ain't right. Now that's also not against the law in Gastonia or anywhere else in North Carolina, but the police still came out and they ended up arresting him. They ended up separating him from his service dog, which violates federal law, and they ended up tasing his service dog as well. The officer who arrested him and tased the dog claimed that he was resisting arrest and that the dog tried to bite him or did bite him. Um, and uh, there's a very easy way to show whether or not that's true and that's to release the body cam footage. And guess what the police are re refusing to do is release the body cam footage. Uh, those who have seen it, uh, Joshua and his friend and as well as eyewitnesses that were there, I'll say that that's not what happened. Joshua was complying, uh, the dog wasn't even facing the officer when it happened. Unfortunately, the officer Morris Taylor III, his father is the head of internal affairs there. And so it looks like they're just trying to bury it. Yeah, definitely. It seems that nepotism is always fun to work with. <laughs> but in terms of this man, because as you're telling me this story, it just my heart bleeds for him. Yep. This thought that they're going to separate you from your pet, but also that this is your service dog. Yep. But then that they tase the animal. Come yep. on, that seems absolutely excessive. Are are Gastonia police saying that that's that that's completely okay and within protocol, given their claim that the dog wouldn't comply? Well, so far, all they're claiming is that the dog tried to, uh, to to bite the officer, but they're not actually releasing the proof of that, which would be the body cam footage. They actually fought it in court, uh, saying that they didn't want to release it because it could jeopardize the privacy of Joshua Rohrer, who was asking for it to be released. Um, they also keep moving his trial back because after the trial commences, uh, they will have to release it anyway. This trial again is for a, a misdemeanor panhandling charge, which is usually a citation. Uh, it, it, the proof, they just don't want it to uh, to come out. And, and the problem is this 
in isolation would be bad enough, but this is actually part of a, a long pattern they've had. There's a, a, a pastor in Gastonia named Moses Colbert. Uh, he has a or had a, a homeless shelter that he was operating out of his church for a couple of years, and uh, they made him shut it down in January. Uh, and since then, 17 homeless people have died uh, in Gastonia in just the past few weeks alone. Um, uh, several years ago, uh, there was a, uh, a supposed rogue group within the Gastonia Police Department that apparently no one else within Gastonia uh, police or government knew about who were going around um, uh, brutalizing and terrorizing the homeless population there. Um, so this is part of a long standing history of abuse of homeless and veterans in Gastonia. Uh, the list goes on and on. I could spend an hour talking about all the examples we came up with, but we're not gonna stop fighting until we get justice for Joshua and for the entire community there in Gastonia. Yes, and so I would assume, being a lawyer myself, to think that that someone is representing Joshua pro bono, correct? Uh, that is not my understanding. We're actually trying to uh, get help from groups like Institute for Justice and others to try to get Joshua the help he needs on the legal front because that uh, not just representing him in court, but eventually there's going to have to be a lawsuit that comes from all of this. Uh, I, I hesitate to speak on that because my understanding is that's a, a bit of a undefined situation there, uh, but we are working with Joshua to get him the legal defense he needs to be able to not just fight this in court, uh, but also to be able to, uh, to, to get some kind of compensation for what has happened here, especially once the uh, once the body cam footage has been released. Uh, but the, the long story short is we're not going to stop fighting uh, until we get justice. I will be back there with uh, many other members of the community uh, this coming uh, May. It's on the, their meetings are on the first Tuesday of every month. We'll be right there at the city council meeting again. Last time the police tried to block us from coming in, that blew up in their face when the media came back to cover it. They ended up letting us back in. So hopefully they won't try that, that again, but we're going to keep coming until we get justice. Yes, and can you tell me, uh, as of today, has the dog been released to Joshua? Actually, unfortunately, the dog passed away. Sunshine passed away while Joshua was uh, still being held. Um, he was, uh, she was released uh, to, I believe, a, an acquaintance of Joshua. And uh, Sunshine, trying to find Joshua, ran away uh, and ended up getting hit. Uh, now, thankfully, uh, Joshua does have a new service dog named Justice. Uh, but unfortunately, as a result of this, uh, not only was he separated temporarily, but permanently, uh, Sunshine uh, did pass away as a result of this. Wow, that's um, that's heartbreaking. It truly yes. is. And as far as the um, your focus on the situation in Gastonia, is there any particular reason that drew you to it? During the campaign for vice president, when I was running for vice president, and since then, the entire reason I'm involved in political activism is because there are too many people who are being treated as victims by the system that we have. This is one of many examples of that. And so any of time that examples of this are brought to my attention, I often go and speak at city councils and county councils and at rallies and so forth across the country to try to bring justice to those who are experiencing injustice. This happens to be relatively in my backyard, just a few hours away from where I am. Uh, and so I've committed myself to continue going there until we get justice for Joshua, Pastor Moses, uh, uh, the homeless and veteran communities in Gastonia and, and everyone in Gastonia and around the country who wants to see those who are in power held accountable when they do wrong.
Yes, and that, I think that's something that most of us are definitely behind uh, because too often is it the case that individuals who abuse their power and do wrong by others, um, that they get away with a slap on the wrist, if exactly. anything. And Absolutely. so when I was looking at the issue in terms of homeless veterans, uh, one thing I came across is that number one, it's it's completely and totally undetermined how many there are out there. But according to HUD, their numbers and estimating that at least in about 2021, there was almost about 20,000 veterans that were unhoused across the United States, which is about 8% of all sheltered adults experiencing homelessness in the US. And it really struck me as well that most homeless vets are in Los Angeles, the highest count by number. Because if you're looking at about 20,000 homeless veterans across the United States, about 9,000 of that number, wow. or excuse me, 11,000 of the number is in, is in Los Angeles. And that really struck me and I assume it's because of the weather and the area I'm sure Skid Row is as well, knowing that you can remain there and no one is going to kick you out. But it does raise a number of issues. It does, and I also think those numbers are probably grossly undercounted. If we compare it to other examples of veterans representing a disproportionately harmed community in this country, something like one out of every 10 people in prison is a veteran. Many of them are there for victimless crimes. These are people that swore an oath to protect and defend the Constitution and the American people against all enemies, foreign and domestic. They get sent overseas usually to fight and kill and die for our domestic enemies, and then when they come home, if they're fortunate enough not to come home in a flag draped casket, they often come home with PTSD, traumatic brain injuries and other chronic health problems. They are, no other word can describe it. They are neglected by the health system that was promised to them. And they often end up homeless or in prison or, or much worse. And this is just one uh, anecdotal example of the harm that is being done to, to people across this country, especially veterans and homeless people. And that's why we continue to fight for justice. Yes, that's incredibly important and you're absolutely right. The fact that these individuals go out there and give, um, sacrifice their lives and and really put their lives on hold often to protect us all, only to experience a degradation at the hands of law enforcement or in other ways by the system where they can't even locate housing or the care that they need and thus end up on the streets unhoused. And to know that this is essentially part of the problem and what happened to Joshua that created this situation here, it's extremely disheartening. It is, and it's also an example of Gastonia's police have unfortunately been, have demonstrated themselves over and over again not to be held accountable. There was a situation with a a veteran, a 74 year old veteran, and I'm forgetting his name at the moment, but he was a 74 year old veteran who was at home recovering from surgery. They performed a wellness check at midnight. Uh, broke into his home and ended up shooting him because when he heard people breaking into his home, he reached for his pistol. Uh, this was a 74 year old veteran uh, who had committed the crime of recovering, recuperating from surgery at home. Of course, uh, the government of Gastonia investigated itself and found that it did nothing wrong. Uh, this is just, and, and we could go on and on with constant examples. Uh, and I, I wish this was something just uh, exclusively in Gastonia, but we hear this across the country. People in government, police officers, government agents, who do harm and then they are held not to be accountable and that you know everything was fine and any evidence that could potentially demonstrate the harm they've done suddenly either disappears or is blocked from being released and if we can if we can get them to release this and if we can demonstrate the harm they did to Joshua then hopefully that begins a domino effect in Gastonia and across the the southeast and across the country to actually hold bad actors and government accountable
Yes, because accountability is necessary. And I understand with your work for being the chair of You Are the Power, are you involved in anything in addition to this fight for Joshua? Absolutely, we killed a really bad abortion ban bill in Manatee County, Florida. We were involved in fighting eminent domain abuse where a city council in Russell, Kentucky was trying to basically steal using eminent domain, a privately owned convalescent home for mentally people with mental illness who were elderly so that they could build a parking lot and a green space. And all the city council members just happened to own all the property adjacent to it. We are we were in Columbus, Ohio working with other groups to put a an amendment on the on the ballot there for this coming election to end qualified immunity in Ohio. Wherever there is a need for justice, you are the power will be there. We have just gotten started in the last year and we will continue to do so. Wow, it sounds like you all are very much invested in a number of things to uplift our society in Toto, which is a very important thing, especially right now. And so in terms of involvement and if people wanna partner with you to join any of your causes, to speak up, uplift, where can they find out more about You Are The Power? Absolutely, so our website is youarethepower.net. We're in the process of launching our social media presence, but the website is youarethepower.net. I'm also covering it on my social media. If you look for Spike Cohen, you can find me pretty easily on on all major social media. And right now what we're trying to do is grow a grassroots army of nonpartisan localized single issue activism that centers around criminal justice reform, civil liberties protection, holding bad actors in government accountable and advocating for policies at the local level that help people to thrive and and live their most prosperous and and free and just life. All right, it sounds like you are doing a lot of work. And we only have about 30 seconds left, but what is next for you? Now that you've passed on and moved on from the vice presidential candidate kind of race. More of this until until I'm asked not to, to attend anymore. I'm continuing to go around the country and, and fight for justice. I'll be back in Gastonia on May 3rd uh, for their next city council meeting. Uh, and uh, wherever I'm needed to uh, go and help fight for liberty and justice and, and holding bad actors accountable and helping those who, who don't have the power to fight on their own. Uh, I will do it to uh, to the extent that I can. All right then, well, thank you so much for your time and for joining us. That's chair of You Are The Power, Spike Cohen. Thank you, Adrian.